That one was on me. Sorry about that. Good morning. How's everybody doing today? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, good morning and welcome. Uh, I want to just say a special thanks for all the testimony this morning. We're going to tie that in a little bit uh, later in, in the message. Uh, I want to just kind of recap last week. Uh, last week was a great service. We, we covered the story of the paralytic man. And, and if you weren't here for that, just kind of cover it. You've probably heard this story before, but uh, there's a man who, who can't walk. Uh, we don't know the severity of his. Hold on, I got to get this cord out from under me. I'm going to die. I know me. Yeah, it'd be embarrassing right in front of all y'all. So his, his, Brent, his friends bring him. Uh, they know Jesus is teaching, and so they bring him there. When they get there, the crowds or, or the house or the temple or wherever they are is full, and so they can't get in. And so in, instead of just turning away, they climb up on top of the roof, and they tear a hole in the roof, and they lower him down in front of Jesus. And we talk about how sometimes it's necessary for us uh, to, to be a little bit disruptive in order to to provide the things for our friends that they need. Sometimes it's, it's part of what it means to be a Christian is to, to ruffle people's feathers a little bit to help get the message across. I'm not saying that we need to be aggressive, but I'm saying we also need to be willing to, to stand up sometimes when somebody can't stand up for themselves. And, and literally that's what's happening in this story. Today we're going to talk about how sometimes the, the Word of God is a bit divisive. And again, I don't mean that in a negative way, but we'll jump on that uh, here in just a little bit. But I want us to remember that as they lower this man down, Jesus says to, to the man, because of your faith, your sins have been forgiven. And of course, the Pharisees and the scribes that are there get all up in arms about it. And they say, you know, they're thinking, who are you to forgive sins? Well, Jesus knows that they're thinking this and he, and he responds. And remember I mentioned last week, anytime Jesus responds to what someone's thinking, it's never a positive experience. But he says, why are you thinking this, these things? What's easier to say to this man, your sins are forgiven or to get up, take your mat and walk? And he said, but to prove that you, to, to you who I am, I tell this man, get up, take your mat, and walk. And so the man gets up, takes his mat, and, and immediately leaves. And so Jesus is further proving who he is, that he is the Son of God. And I spent us a, a good bit of our time last week reminding us that our goal in this study is to know Jesus and to make him known. And today we're going to talk specifically about those two things, what it means to know Jesus intimately in your heart, to know him as your savior, and then also what it means to go and make him known. The passage we're going to read today um, is, is going to help us uh, see that sometimes we create, uh, the, or this message that Jesus has creates some division among those uh, who are hearing it. And often when we think about division, we think of that in a negative light. But I want to remind us this morning that division is something that benefits us all the time. For example, if you have a huge task at home, I don't know if this happens in your house. I have a lot of kids and I always say people make fun of Will for having a lot of kids until it's chore time, right? Because you have a lot of things that have to be done. And when you split a big load amongst many hands, the work gets done much quicker. We also experience that when the Fuge team comes in. Remember JJ making fun of my huge list? And, and I'll tell you, a bunch of the stuff on that list got done in a very quick amount of time because there were so many people here working on all those things because we divided that work up. So division isn't always negative. It's, it, it works to our advantage much more often than what we think about. In today's passage, we're going to see Jesus identifying some dividing lines that existed when he was alive and some that still exist today. And rather at looking at those divisions as something negative, God wants us to see them as a way to classify where our hearts are. I used to say all the time, it's a litmus test. It, it is a way to look at your own heart, to gauge where it stands, and then respond accordingly. As we discussed last week, without truth, there cannot be healing. 
And that's the same uh, that we're going to see today. That that truth, sometimes even it's hard to hear that dividing that happens in our hearts where Jesus drops the plumb line in our life and says, which side are you standing on? Sometimes that's hard to hear, but it's always for our benefit because it brings clarity. It brings relief. It brings joy. It brings love. It brings healing. So today, Mark Westbrook's going to come up and he's going to read our passage for us and we're going to dive into what God has for us. So Mark, if you're ready, come on up here, big man. After this, Jesus left the house. He saw a tax collector sitting at the tax booth. The man's name was Levi. Follow me, Jesus said to him. Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi gave a huge banquet for Jesus at his house. A large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and their teachers of the law complained to Jesus Jesus' disciples. They said, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have not come to get those who think they are right with God to follow me. I have come to get sinners who turn away from their sins. Awesome job. Thank you, Mark. So today we're going to look at three things. We're going to talk about when a person feels seen and known by Jesus, they choose to follow him. We're going to look at genuine love is what draws people. And then the third thing is that repentant hearts receive forgiveness and blessing. I've shared my testimony with you guys, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, about when I gave my life to Christ to kind of set the scene. Um, I'm like a sixth grader, I believe, maybe seventh grader, but I'm young. In church, sitting up. If you're standing at the pulpit, I was on the right side about halfway back. And I was sitting next to Eddie, who was my cousin slash partner in crime. And, and I don't remember the words that Brother Jimmy, that was what we called our pastor. I don't remember the words that he said, but I remember that as he said them, there was um, a drawing in my heart that I knew in that moment that I needed Jesus to be my Savior. And, and just to preface this, my kids are going to love hearing this, I was not a good kid, Okay. I was, I used to, when we were younger in youth ministry, I used to tell our students that I was a youth minister's worst nightmare. Like pranks were my MO. Like that was how I lived my life. And so um, when I, when I'm sitting in this pew and I'm hearing this message of Jesus, I felt something I had never felt before. I felt I didn't know how to describe it at the time, but it was a drawing of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was very clearly saying to me, Will, this is what you need. And, that, and I, I shared with you guys that, that when I shared this testimony last time, that I bumped Eddie and was like, hey, we should go do this. And Eddie was like, uh-uh, we're going to get in trouble if we get up. And that was true. If we got up in the middle of church, we were going to be in trouble. But in, my, in that moment, because of the need that I felt in my heart for Jesus, for me, it overpowered the fear of punishment. And that was a big deal because my dad was good at punishment, okay? So I, I felt this need, and, and I got up, and I went forward, and I gave my life to Christ. Fast forward, my dad was super happy about the whole thing. It was fine. I didn't get in trouble, okay? But this passage in Mark that we read starts us with that same draw from Jesus. In verse, one, it sa- or in verse 27, it says, After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office, or some translations say the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. When Luke says that Jesus saw Levi, that that word literally means that he beheld him, okay? Levi was seen, like 
scene scene. I was, as I was reading through this, I was thinking about, um, some of you know Andy McGee. He was an elder at the verse, very first TGP, and Andy has this ability, and I wish I knew how to do it. But that man, when he looks at you, it's like he is seeing your soul. Like, I don't know how to, any other way to describe that, but his gaze, some of y'all are nodding your heads, his gaze is just piercing. Like when you're talking to him, you know that in that moment there is nothing else going on in his mind except for what you are saying and you feel seen. And sometimes that's a really comforting thing and sometimes that's a little bit like, whoa, hold on bro, that's, you're a little too close right now, okay? But when we see Luke saying that Jesus saw Levi, this is what he's talking about. It's that Jesus looks at Levi, he beholds him, and he instantly knows Levi. But more importantly, Levi knows that Jesus has seen him completely. To be known in that kind of way can be disconcerting at first. But then it brings such peace because there's nothing that's hidden. I remember when, when Bethany and I were first dating, you know how like you always try to put your first foot, your best foot forward, like you got to look just right and your hair's got to be done just right. Back in those days, I had one of these, you know, get my hair out of my foot. No, actually I didn't. My hair was spiky when we first got together. I had the frosted tips. It was a whole lot of fun. Anyway, I was all about my appearance, but you know how as you get a little further along in your relationship, like that stuff is a little bit more lax and, and then for the first time ever you fart in front of your significant other and then like it just, you know what I'm saying? Like when... Lizzie said, no, never. I don't believe it. There is something special about getting to take down those barriers with someone, right? It's a little bit disconcerting at first, but then it brings, my wife is going, oh my gosh, and I just draw attention to it. I'm going to be in so much trouble. When you are fully known, something incredible happens. This is point number one for today is when a person feels seen and known by Jesus, they choose to follow him. Jesus looks at, at Levi and instantly knows Levi. And I don't want to pass that by too quickly. I want us to think about this for just a, another moment. When, we, when we, we need to see that Levi is, uh, so that we can understand how significant this was to Levi. We've talked about this before, but Levi is considered to be a traitor among his own people. So, but also, side note, Levi is also Matthew, the disciple. He has both names, okay? And so this is one of the disciples. So when Jesus says, follow me, and he does, that's in later, you know, like the gospel of Matthew, that's this guy, okay? So Levi is considered a traitor by his own people because he's a tax collector. Roman government came in and, and occupied the area of Jerusalem, or not Jerusalem, but Israel, right? And remember, they'd been under two other ruling occupiers. Like, I don't know if you know this or not, but it's not fun when somebody occupies you. We've had a couple of world wars about that. Um, and so Levi is employed by this Roman government to collect taxes from the people that live there. When it says he's in a booth, most likely this was a little booth next to the road. And when you travel down the road, you got to pay a tax, kind of like paying a toll these days, okay? So this is Levi's job. And here's how tax collectors made money. The Roman government would say, you need to collect this much money for someone coming down this road. And then the tax collector would add on top of that. And that's how he made his money was he would overtax the people. I don't know if you know this, but bill collection works a lot that way these days. If you have a, a debt for somebody and you just don't pay it, and you don't pay it, and you don't pay it, they will sell that debt to a debt collector. So let's say I owe someone $100 and I won't pay them. They'll sell that debt to a debt collector for $10, 
And then the debt collector will come to me and try to collect the $100. And if I'll eventually pay it because they pester me enough, they've just made $90. You see how that, how that works? This is how tax collection worked in those days too. They were required to collect a certain amount and anything they could collect over that went in their pockets. So on, fa- on top of the fact that he's working for the Roman government, tax collectors were known to be thieves and liars. And so here is this man who is outcast from most of society, who is disliked by most of society. I guarantee you when people were paying their tax, it was not a pleasant experience because they know that the man that they're paying is a traitor and is a liar and he's a thief. And Jesus is walking down the road. He's in the region of Capernaum and he sees Levi. Then he asks Levi to follow him, to become his student, to be his traveling companion, to be his friend. Think about how you choose who you want, your friends want to be. Is a person who's publicly known to be a liar and a thief on the top of qualifications for who you want to be your friends? Most likely not. But Jesus sees Levi, he knows Levi, and he chooses Levi. Church, Jesus has has done the same for us. He sees us. He knows us. He knows us better than anyone does. He sees our failures. He sees our sins. He sees the things that we don't want other people to know about. And in being seen and known completely by Jesus, He chooses us. He says to you, He says to me, come follow me. Be my son or be my daughter. Be my friend. Be my chosen one. In this moment of being seen, Levi could feel all of this. And look again at how he responds. We see this in verse 28. It says, so leaving everything behind, he got up and began to follow him. And in being completely known by Jesus, Levi chooses to leave everything and to follow him. The other gospels don't include this phrase, leave everything. But Luke does to emphasize that by walking away from this job, by walking away from the wealth that comes from this job, Levi is making a calculated decision. He is weighing the cost And he knows that this is the right choice for him. This is not a whim. In leaving his post, Levi is leaving the opportunity to ever have this job again because the Roman government would not rehire someone who walked away from their duties and cost them money. For Levi to follow Jesus, Jesus is worth it. It's worth it because no one has ever loved or known him the way that Jesus just did. And that brings us to point number two, is that genuine love draws people. The love of Jesus didn't just prompt Levi to follow him. The love of Jesus also prompted him to invite others to experience what he just experienced. And this is an incredibly important distinction for us to see. The same love that drew you to Jesus should also draw you to tell others about what you have found. Look at how Levi responded publicly to what he discovered when Jesus gave him the invitation to follow him. In verse 29, it says, Then Levi hosted a grand banquet for him at his house. Now there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were reclining at the table with them. One of the commentaries I I read this week pointed out that Levi used his influence, his wealth, and his skills to invite 
people to his table. He reached out to everyone that he knew and he invited them to come to his house for a dinner party so that they could meet Jesus. Levi used all of his resources to give an opportunity for someone else to meet the Savior. He gave this to his friends, to his acquaintances, and to his colleagues. He reached out to the people that he knew. This isn't to say that we shouldn't try to share the gospel with the people that we don't know, but we also shouldn't look over the obvious people that God's already put in our lives. It'd be careless for us to ignore those people and move towards those who don't. I remember when um, I went to Uganda the first time, we were having a conversation with Kenneth Williams about what it meant to be a missionary. I don't remember what prompted this statement, but I'll never forget him saying, if you're not making disciples of Jesus where you currently live, what makes you think a transplant in geography will change anything? God's called us to be disciple makers, and if we're not doing it right here at home, we're not going to do it when we go somewhere else, because life will not be easier when we get there. It will be more difficult. These people that Levi invited over got to experience what Levi experienced. But it's interesting that not all who heard about this party were excited about it. Let's move forward in verse 30. It says, but the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners. And this is the moment where we begin to see this division that I was talking about earlier. We have two groups of people represented here. We have the religious leaders, the Pharisees, and the scribes. Then we also have the tax collectors and the sinners, as Luke describes them. One group is enjoying the party, and the others are definitely not enjoying the party. Luke is describing what I bet could be felt in the air. There's this one group that is experiencing the love in the presence of Jesus, and then there's a different group that's experiencing anger and resentment right? What's interesting is if I were to have a conversation with you one day and there are two groups of people and one's religious and one's sinful and I tell you uh, that one of them was full of joy and love and the other was full of anger and malice, how you would divide those is going to tell you a lot about your previous history with the church, right? How you view these two groups is going to get to the heart of the matter. This is where the division that I spoke about earlier comes into play. Look at verse 31. It says, Jesus replied to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. The honest, difficult thing to talk about is that many times it's the religious that cause people the most pain and heartache. But this is precisely why Jesus came. And this is why that these men are at this dinner party. Jesus is revealing God's character and showing the people in this area what God really values. And it isn't religious activity or false righteousness that Jesus is looking for. Jesus came to love those that the world has overlooked. Let's look at how the Apostle John describes this division in a famous verse we all know, John chapter 3, verse 16. We're going to read through verse 21. It says, For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but he have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but the people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. And all who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for the fear their sins will be exposed. 
But those who do what is right come to the light so that others can see that they are doing what God wants. Jesus is not here at this party to be divisive by just turning people away. His presence is divisive because it reveals the heart and the nature of people. Luke is telling us that those who claim to know God, the religious leaders, didn't know him at all. In fact, those that the religious would have said were the farthest from God were those that were there at that moment were the closest to him. The religious leaders would have looked at themselves and said, look how good I am and look how bad they are. God must not love them. He's not involved in their lives. And Jesus is at the table reclining with those and the ones that are judging are off to the side. It's the opposite of what they think should be happening. Because the religious were interested in power and control over their own lives and other people's lives. And Jesus is interested in bringing people to the freedom and the joy that God created us for. This leaves the most important question we're going to ask ourselves when looking at this. Where do I fall in this, in this division? Am I siding with the religious leaders who want to control their own lives? Or am I choosing to give up that control so that I can experience the joy and freedom that comes from knowing Jesus? Robert Munger says, The church is the only fellowship in the world where the one requirement for membership is the unworthiness of the candidate. C.S. Lewis once wrote, Christianity tells people to repent and promises them forgiveness. It has nothing, as far as I know, to say to people who do not know that they have done anything to repent of and who do not feel they need any forgiveness. What both of these authors are talking about is the fact that every person is born a sinner. All of us have been separated by God from our sin, and therefore all of us are in need of forgiveness. And in our story, the presence of Jesus is revealing those who know they have a need for God and those who think they don't need Him at all. But the pathway to forgiveness is through repentance. And that's where Jesus lands the, the plane, so to speak, in this passage. And this is point number three for today is that repentant hearts receive forgiveness and blessing. Repentance is not a word that we use very much in everyday conversation, and, and therefore there's often confusion about what that is and what it does and why we need to do it. So let's talk about it for a minute. Because if Jesus is saying that he came to call sinners to repentance, I want to know what that means, right? And I think you do too. Let's look at it from Old Testament perspective to give us some context around why it's needed. We've already established that we're born into sin and that that sin separates us from God. So what did God tell his people to do about it? In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, it says, And my people who bear my name humble themselves, pray and seek my face, and turn from their evil ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. To repent is to turn away from sin. It's making a conscious decision that you desire to know God more than you desire to rebel against him by living in sin. It has always been God's desire and intention that we would live righteously. He created us in righteousness, but then we disobeyed God by turning to sin. And Jesus came to bring correction to the misunderstanding that existed between man and God. God wants us to be righteous. Make no mistake about that. But we are unable to do that in our own power. Look at Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 21 and 22. It says, But if the wicked person turns from all the sins he has committed, keeps all my statutes, and does what is right, just and right, he will certainly live. He will not die. 
none of the transgressions he has committed will be held against him. He will live because of the righteousness he has practiced. This scripture and so many like it is why the Pharisees were prompted to seek righteousness by trying to keep the law perfectly. However, in doing so, they took all the focus off of God and they put it on themselves and on the law. And as we have discussed so many times, the law was not given to make us righteous. The law was given to show us that we are not righteous and that we are in need of God's righteousness that comes through Jesus. And when we see our own sinfulness, the response that God wants is for us to confess the shortcomings, which is what we call repentance. When we repent, by turning from sin, we are forgiven by God and our relationship is restored. I want you to think about it like this. If you've ever had a friend who did something wrong to you and then you found out and they said, oh, I'm sorry, and then they turned around and did the same exact thing again, were they really sorry that they did it? No. They were sorry they got caught and that's very different. Repentance is not saying, God, I know I messed up, but I plan to do it again. Repentance is seeing your own sin and then making a conscious decision that I'm going to do everything in my power to never do that again. It is turning away from the sin and then recognizing that I am powerless to defeat the sin on my own. I need Jesus to do this for me, to work through my life, to change my heart. Let me show you an example of, from Scripture of, of Paul and his t- testimony about repentance in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12 through 16. It says, I give thanks to Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, appointing me to ministry. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man, but I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed along with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. But I received mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. This is the attitude of a person whose sin has been revealed and they have truly repented. Paul is not hiding his sin. He's saying, I am the worst of them. And it's only because of Jesus that I am who I am today. Paul's sin was revealed to him. He repented and his whole life was changed. He was transformed from a man that persecuted church to a man who devoted his entire life and even gave his life to build the church, to share the gospel so that people could know him, could know Jesus. Paul was transformed when his sin was revealed and he changed in response to the grace and the mercy that he received from God when he repented of his sin. And in closing out Luke 5.32, Jesus tells us that repentance is why he came. He says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus is making a statement here that is dividing those who have heard his message Those that believe they are righteous also believe they don't need God. These people will never receive grace as long as they continue to believe this. But those of us that know that we are sinners, we confess our sin to God in repentance, we receive the blessing of knowing God as He intended us to know Him. We experience the joy of a relationship with God that is void of guilt or shame. We are fully known and fully loved. We have found ourselves in a place 
of belonging, a place where we know that even when we do mess up, God is faithful to forgive us. This is what drew Levi to Jesus. This is what draws crowds to Jesus. My prayer and my hope is that if you don't know or don't have that kind of relationship with God, that he would draw you to himself. And if you don't know how to have that kind of relationship, it would be my great honor to help you walk that out on your own, to help you find that relationship, to introduce you to a loving and gracious God. I want to end and leave us today with this final thought this morning. Jesus sees and knows you completely. In spite of what you might believe or think about yourself, Jesus loves you and wants you to know how much he loves you. All that separates the greatest love in the world from you is sin and Jesus is offering to take that sin away. Jesus makes it abundantly clear through his interactions with Levi that he is more than capable of taking away those sins. He is faithful to forgive because he loves us so much. 1 John 4.10 says, This is real love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. God loved you and I enough to send his son so that that eternal separation that we experience from God could be mended, that we could be redeemed, we could be made whole again. Don't miss the opportunity that you've been given to experience that love personally. Let's pray. Jesus, this morning I ask that as we are contemplating this message, as we're thinking about what it means for us, Father, that you would bring um, clarity to each of our minds as we're thinking about where we stand with you. And Father, if there are some in the room today that you are drawing to yourselves, Father, I ask that you give them the boldness and the courage to talk to somebody about that. And Father, that as they are figuring out what it means to be known, to be seen by you, Father, as they are feeling what that's like, God, I ask that you would overwhelm them with peace and love and joy in this moment. Father, as we have conversations with the people in our lives, as we invite them to the table to meet you, Father, I ask that you would prepare our hearts for that. Just as as Myra was asking from Wanda this morning, Lord, that you would give us the testimony and the scripture that they need to hear in the moment so that they can come to know you. Father, I ask all of this, not for my sake, not for the church's sake, but for your sake, for the sake of the lost. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.